God, thank you that we can have this last time with you this morning during the church service. And I again just ask that you would be present in a powerful way, that you would give us practical information to grow our relationship with you, to know how to commune with you, uh, to ensure that we are hearing all the things we need to hear and knowing all the things we need to know, and above all, connecting with whom we need to connect. So bless us now, I pray, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to look at the life of John, the Apostle John, first, and then we'll kind of have some principles we'll glean uh, after that. But first and foremost, even though we're looking at a man who has a lot of good examples in his experience, we're not saying that he was perfect, right? John had faults like you and I have faults. Um, in Matthew chapter 20 and in Mark chapter 10, he sought preferential treatment. He and, and James asked Jesus and said, hey, whenever you come in the glory of your kingdom, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left. And Jesus' response to them is, you have no idea what you're asking. And it's... They really have no idea what they're asking because the glory of Jesus is literally the cross. They're asking to be on the cross on the right and on the cross on the left next to Jesus whenever he is in his glory, pouring out his life under the dregs for the people he came to save, which is all of us, by the way. So John sought preferential treatment. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus tells the disciples to go and, and minister in these cities and prepare them. Um, and for his coming. And some people are like, nah, we're not that interested. And John has this brilliant idea. I know, Jesus, let's call fire down from heaven and consume these people. And Jesus' response is, you don't know what spirit you're of. And they sought exclusivity in Mark chapter 9, whenever James and John were doing their thing, and, and the rest of the disciples, and John tells Jesus, hey, these people were trying to do stuff with us, but we said, no, you can't. And Jesus says that they're not against us, they're for us. Right? They were seeking exclusivity. And lastly, he stumbled in Christ's time of need. Jesus says that all of you will be made to stumble uh, because of me. That includes all, because all generally means all. So even though John got it together, and we'll see that later, uh, there was a moment in John's life where he did indeed stumble and leave Jesus in his greatest time of need. What I love about John, though, is he has this endearing tendency. He keeps following Jesus. First is found in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to have a brief Bible study this morning on the life of John, and then we'll go into some basic principles of how to grow our devotional lives. But I want to kind of use this as a framework of what it can look like for us. So in Matthew chapter 4, beginning of verse 21, if you've got your Bibles with you, Matthew chapter 4, and I'll begin, as I mentioned, in verse 21. Going on from there, he being Jesus, saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, he called them. Then it says in verse 22, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, if fishing were a hobby, we would think, yeah, big deal. I mean, that's pretty cool. They were willing to give up their hobby to go hang out with Jesus. But this is actually their profession. This is their lifestyle. This is their means of providing for themselves. And the equivalent is basically for someone to walk to the front door of the business that they run, drop the key to the door, walk away, never to return. This is a really big deal. But there's something about Jesus that's so intriguing to John that he's willing to follow wherever he goes. Happens again in Luke chapter 5. It's another telling of this and a little more information and potentially something that happened right after the, the Matthew account. But in Luke chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Luke 5, now verse 3. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. The seashore and the incline kind of serves as basically an amphitheater. In water, uh, voices travel very well over water. I walk in the mornings, and I'll walk by 3 a.m., and there's this couple that lives across the lake, but I kind of walk on the bridge that kind of splits the lake in half. And I can hear when they argue because water carries all the way, or, you know, sound carries all the way across the water. I've always felt like going over there, knocking on the door and saying, hey, just so you know, everyone on that side of the water can hear what you're yelling at each other about. Um, but they have big, scary dogs, so I've never had the courage to do that. 
So in verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. First of all, this guy may not know his head from a hole in the ground when it comes to fishing. Like, you're going to tell fishermen how to fish? But there's, again, there's something about Jesus. And so in verse 5, but Simon answers and said, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And I dig this about Peter, because even though when Jesus asks him to do something that makes no sense, you know what he does? He does it anyway. Why? Because Jesus said it. And if Jesus is saying it, it must be in my best interest, so yeah, let's give it a go. So he does, and look what happens. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So just imagine, the, just think in your mind the sounds that are going on in this particular trip. People are, are shouting for joy. They're excited. They're calling the people in the other boat to come over. The nets themselves are breaking. So in verse 7, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. This is kind of like if someone were, were to do a play slot machines where they kind of pull the thing and they get seven, 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 and then the thing just blows up. Too many coins are coming out of this thing. The little plastic cup they give you is full, and they're just trying to find things to fill this because it just keeps coming. But just imagine, like their boats are sinking, y'all. This is amazing to me. It's a miraculous catch of fish that's so bountiful that both boats are beginning to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it in verse 8, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Paul says in Romans 2, 4, that the goodness of God leads to repentance, right? When you know that you don't deserve the goodness of God and you come face to face with the supernatural goodness of God, the response is generally the same. I don't deserve this. Ah, you're just terrified. Verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken, which must be a big deal because they catch fish all the time. So they'd never seen this in their life. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, their business partners. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to the land, what did they do? It's in the verses we were reading. I, I gave you a cliffhanger. You want me to feed you myself, but I'm asking you to read it. What does it say? It says they forsook all and followed him. Exactly. That's exactly what the verse says. They literally leave the fish. Now, again, this is, if, if their profession is fishing, and they have filled two boats full of fish to the point that they're sinking, fish equals money. They have two boats full of cash money, and what do they do? They leave them by the seashore and go and follow Jesus. That's amazing to me. There's something about Jesus that is so enticing to them that they're willing to leave the most profitable business venture they've ever had in their lives, the most profitable day of their business, they're just walking away. Just leave them and follow Jesus. I think that's amazing. Maybe you don't, but I do. All right, next verse, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, beginning of verse 35. Mark chapter 5 and verse 35. So Jesus is approached by the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. Now, what type of relationship do Jesus and the synagogue rulers have at this time? Are they besties? Are they bosom buddies? Do they get along well? Do they like Jesus? Bubba says no. They can't stand Jesus. They're not friends of his, but yet Jairus, the synagogue ruler, has a daughter who's deathly ill. And at this stage, he's realizing that I got to do something and he's actually willing to go approach Jesus. So he has to sit, you just imagine, he has to muster the guts to approach Jesus, first of all. And if Jesus were to treat this man in the way that this man would treat Jesus, it's not even worth making that trip. But he's going to give it a shot. He's heard that this guy can heal people. He musters the guts. And when he gets to Jesus, he actually finds him, first of all. And when he gets to Jesus, he says, my daughter is dying, and Jesus literally is willing to go with this man. This is a last-minute act of desperation, and he's willing to go with Jesus. Jesus is willing to go with him. So how do you think Jairus is feeling right now about the potential of his, his daughter being healed? How's he feeling? Very good. She's going to be well. It's going to be okay. And as they embark upon the journey to go meet with Jesus, to, to bring Jesus to the house to meet his daughter, this woman comes up from behind and kind of yanks on, on, on his coattails here. 
And she touches the edge of his garment. There's an Old Testament passage that says that he will come with healing in his wings. And the wings were basically the hem of their garment. And she thought, you know, if I go out and touch this guy's garments, I could be made well. She has internal bleeding for years. So in this situation, it's, she spent all her money on doctors. It takes a lot of courage, by the way, for Luke to mention that in his account because Luke's a physician. Kind of makes his profession look bad. But she spent all of her money on doctors. It didn't fix her problem. And she touches the hem of Jesus, and immediately the bleeding stops. She's healed in a moment, and Jesus stops. And there's people all around him, crowding him, all, all touching him and stuff. And he says, who touched me? And his disciples are thinking, who touched you? Uh, everybody. And he says, no, 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 power went out for me. Who touched me? And the woman's terrified. She thinks she may be in trouble. Jesus is making it clear to this woman that touching some random guy's clothes is not what heals you. It's faith in Jesus that heals you. And she goes, she leaves in peace. And then Jesus, as he's continuing to go to Jairus' house, two servants come running from the house and they say, your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead why bother the teacher anymore? How do you think Jairus is feeling now? Devastated. I mean, he mustered the guts. He actually found Jesus. Jesus was willing to come. And then his daughter is dead. And I love the way that Jesus deals with this situation. Jesus says in verse... 36, as soon as, Je as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler, do not be afraid, only believe. I love the way that Jesus deals with this man. He basically tells him, don't listen to them. I'm coming to your house, lead the way. Jesus only brings a few people with him, Peter, James, and John, and he raises this girl from the dead, y'all. Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead, and of the people who get to see this amazing miracle by Jesus, John is one of them. We're going to see in our time together in this brief part of the study that John is always there when the big, awesome stuff happens in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Continuing to Matthew chapter 16, I think I'll probably just summarize this one. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells the disciples at the end of the chapter that some of you here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, and... A reasonable question can be marshaled from this. Uh, has Jesus come yet? No. Um, are any of these people still alive that were standing in front of Jesus when he said that? No. Well, that's a problem. But verse, chapters and versification came later in the Bible. They weren't written that way. So sometimes we assume new chapter, new story, new context. But that's not the case here. It says, now after six days, in chapter 17 and verse 1, six days after what? Whenever Jesus says that some of you will not taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The very next thing that occurs is the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter, James, and John are on the top of the mountain with Jesus. Jesus' body is transformed. It's brilliant as the light. It says His clothes are whiter than any launderer could launder them. And they're speaking with Jesus, two people. Who are those two people? Moses and Elijah. And they're representing two classes of people who will be present at the second coming of Jesus, of the righteous. Those who die and are resurrected. Moses is resurrected, we're told, in Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter in verse 9, I think. Yeah, I think so. And then Moses, Elijah never tastes death. He's translated. He's brought to heaven in a fiery chariot. They literally see a snapshot, and the voice of God is there as well. They literally see a snapshot of the second coming of Jesus. That's the amount of transfiguration. But again, James, John, and Peter are there. Something big, something amazing happens, and John is there. Going to John chapter 13. Uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and turn there. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 23. John chapter 13, verse 23. This is at the Lord's Supper. And now there was leaning, verse 23, on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom, he, whom Jesus loved. Who is the disciple whom Jesus loved? John. So just imagine, this sounds kind of creepy, right? Because if this dinner table scene is anything like your dinner table scene, sitting beside someone and resting your head over and leaning in their bosom is really uncomfortable, first of all, and it's just kind of weird. 
But the tables were set up different in their day. The tables were only like 12 inches to 18 inches in height, and they would lay down on the ground and lean on their elbows on pillows. And they would eat this way. Now, if you're leaning down on your elbow like this and someone else is leaning down on their elbow like this, it's much easier to have your head in someone's bosom. It's far more comfortable. And three, it's a whole lot less creepy. So just so you know, this is the context of this particular situation. But the point is, in this very intimate moment that Jesus has with the disciples of washing their feet, breaking his body, and drink, having them drink of his blood as far as the, 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 act, the act of what they're doing, right? John's there. He's right beside Jesus, as close as you can get, resting his head in the bosom of Jesus. Continuing on in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told in the Desire of Ages in the Gethsemane chapter, that as soon as Jesus' first foot gets in the garden, he collapses to the ground because of the weight of the sin of the world. Just collapses to the ground. The disciples help him up, and he collapses again. They take him into the, the garden. Jesus has, a, he has eight people stay at the entrance, and he brings three people with him. Judas has left at this stage. Peter, James, and John, Jesus requests something of them. In Jesus' greatest time of need, when he needs prayer, he thinks if there's anybody I can trust in this time of need, it's going to be Peter, James, and John. That's a lot of trust from Jesus, isn't it? He's always providing for their needs, but when he has a need, certainly they'll be there for me. And we know the story that they end up sleeping when Jesus needs them most. But when Jesus had a need of prayer, he thought he could rely upon John. Of all the people, John is going to be one of those three that's actually going to be there for me in my time of need. Continuing to John chapter 18, uh, there's the story of Peter and John eventually getting their act together and chasing down Jesus at the high priest's house. Now, when he gets to the door, this is John chapter 18, 13 to 17. There seems to be a previous connection between John and the lady who runs the door at the, at the house. Is her name Rhoda? Is that what it says in there? Or is that the lady in the book of Acts that opened the door for Peter? I always forget that. That's an Acts. What is her name? John 18, 13 to 17. It actually mentions her name, I think, uh, establishing the fact that he knew who she was. Um, it just says the servant girl. I guess I confused that with the story in the book of Acts. Maybe I was wrong. That happens sometimes. Anyway... Uh, when, Jesus, there, there seems, when Jesus is brought into the high priest's home, there seems to be a previous connection between John because John is able to get access to the house when Peter isn't. John goes in, convinces the servant girl to let, them into the, to let Peter into the house. There's a tradition that says that John was the supplier of the high priest's fish and that this is how he had this connection because he brings a fish to the door, he knows the girl and so on. But the girl, once the door is open, John is on the inside at the door, Peter's on the outside of the door, the servant's in the middle, and she asks Peter a question. What does she ask him? She says, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, what does this imply about John? That she knew that John was a disciple of Jesus, unashamedly, it seems. And yet asking this question in front of John... And in front of the girl, what does Peter say? Mm -mm. I don't know. Right in front of John, this happens. This is why John is able to record this. So he is at the high priest's house with Peter when Jesus has a great time of need. This is a dangerous thing for, for John. He could be killed for doing this. He could be crucified too. But the man just cannot stop following Jesus. He even follows Jesus into enemy territory. It continues. John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, it mentions that at the cross of Jesus were a handful of people. One of them is the mother of Jesus, and the other, another one of them, is the disciple whom Jesus loved, who again we know as John. Now, this is amazing to me. John follows Jesus all the way to the cross. He's willing to follow him all the way. So he gets to the cross, and Jesus has this amazing statement in John chapter 19. And verse 25, John chapter, uh, it says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Verse 26, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. 
In Jesus' greatest moment of agony and, and having the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulder and severe physical pain, he's thinking of other people. He's thinking of his mother. And of all the people that Jesus is willing to entrust with the care of his mother, it's John. Something about John's pursuit of Jesus and John's relationship with Jesus led Jesus to believe that John could be entrusted with such a responsibility. Now, this is amazing to me because in this culture, family takes care of their own, and James and Jude will later be converted. Jude writes the book of Jude. James writes the book of James. Reasonably. They don't name them after themselves, but that's just who wrote them. And James is the head of the church in Acts chapter 15. They're going to be converted, but yet Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to John. I don't know why, but I think it's amazing, and it shows a lot about the trust of Jesus. Continuing now, we're almost done with the life of John. In John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, John chapter 20, actually, I'm not even going to read that. I'll just summarize it, but I'll read the next one. When Mary Magdalene has an encounter with Jesus, she goes and tells the disciples, and the first of the 12 disciples to get to the tomb is, who do you guess? John. Now, granted, he's younger than Peter and probably can run faster. But for the point of the study, he's the first person at the tomb of Jesus of the 12 disciples. Continuing to John chapter 21, John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. Jesus is walking on the shore here. It says, so when they had eaten breakfast, John 21, verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, is reinstated by Jesus three times. There's original language nuance that happens there. I just won't go into that for time's sake. But again, going into verse 18, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself, you dressed yourself, and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. He basically says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And here's what it's going to cost you, Pete. And it's going to lead to difficulty. Peter himself is going to be crucified for his Lord, upside down. He didn't feel worthy of being crucified in the same way. Jesus warns him of this, but Peter still has a bit of a problem in his system that will eventually be worked out. But look at what happens next. Verse 19, this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Verse, so he concludes, it's going to cost you, but follow me. Verse 20, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. So as Jesus is walking down the shore with Peter, reinstating him, behind them, someone is following who has nothing to do with this conversation. It's none of his beeswax. This is not a conversation that Jesus is having with John. It's a conversation that Jesus is having with Peter. But John cannot stop following Jesus. He just can't stop. If Jesus is here, I want to be with him. I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. And I find it interesting that John is present when Peter denies Jesus, and he's also present whenever Peter is reinstated. I think that's pretty cool. But nonetheless, that's what happens in John 21 at the end of the chapter. But look what happens at the beginning of the chapter. I want to close with this on the life of John, and we'll deal with the practical nuts and bolts. John chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples in the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing, and they said, we're going with you also. They went out and immediately they and got into the boat, and that night they caught how many fish? None. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? Now, if you pride yourselves at being professional fishermen and you don't catch any fish and someone reminds you of that, how are you feeling at that stage? Kind of inadequate, maybe even a little frustrated. But he says, children, have you any food? And the response is no. And what's about to happen should remind you of Luke chapter 5. It should. And it should have reminded them of Luke chapter 5. 
And he said to them in verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. They could bring the net in, though it was breaking in Luke chapter 5. Here they can't. There's so many fish, they can't do that. Verse 7, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And I think this is actually on my slides here. It says, it is the Lord. And look what happens next in the verse. Now when Simon Peter saw that it was the Lord, is that what the text says? Peter does not recognize that this is Jesus. He's relying upon the testimony of someone else that this is the work of Jesus. Now, when he heard that it was true, he put it on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. I find this interesting because of all the people who spent the most quality time with Jesus, James, John, and Peter had a closer relationship than the rest. They knew him better than the rest, and yet James and Peter are in this boat besides John and only one of those three actually recognizes that this miracle that just happened in their life is the handiwork of Jesus. And who is that? It's John. Now, why? I venture to say this because John spent the most quality time with Jesus. And so when Jesus was working in his life, he was able to recognize this. John, again, is the only one there. Many Christians today are struggling with recognizing or hearing Jesus in their lives, and I think the reason is that they're not spending quality time with Jesus. So how could they? How could we possibly recognize the working of Jesus in our life if we aren't communing with Him and recognizing how He speaks, how He works, how He deals with broken people, and so on? Does that make sense? It's a very practical lesson that we can learn from the life of John. Now, two sobering thoughts on this, and I promise there's good news, but this is a very sobering thought for me that if we don't think it's important enough for us to seek Jesus' face daily in word and in the prayer, what makes us think that we're going to want to see His face every day for eternity? If we don't desire to commune with God now, what makes us think that we're going to want to commune with God then? Does that make sense? Just a practical lesson I think we can learn from the example of the life of John. Charles Spurgeon once said that you cannot have Christ in eternity if you do not have Him in time. Now, I have a very simple question for you because I don't want you to be discouraged here. Do you think that Jesus is looking for reasons to not allow people into heaven? Of course not. But a friend of mine puts it this way. Uh, maybe it's in the next slide. If we, here's the second point, though. If we aren't spending that time seeking Him each morning, then how on earth can we take Him with us and share Him with others? What are we offering them? What are we offering our classmates? What are we offering our spouses? What are we offering our children or our students if we ourselves aren't seeking to glean from Jesus manna from heaven, encouragement, strength, power to overcome sin, power to obey, you can find all of these things in communion with Christ. But if we don't seek this, what are we giving the people around us when we try to invest in them? Here's the real issue at hand. How we spend our time shows the things that we value the most. If something is important to you, you'll wake up early. Right? When we had those you know, really early plane flights to go on vacation, somehow we find ourselves getting out of bed early enough to not miss our plane. But communion with God doesn't quite work the same way for us. And so for some of us, it may just be a situation of mind over mattress. Right? You've heard mind over matter. It could just be a situation of mind over mattress that we're just wrestling with getting out of bed in the mornings. Do you think that Jesus wants to commune with you in the morning? Yes or no? Yes. Do you think it's possible for Jesus to give us the ability to actually wake up in the morning if we want to have time with him? If we recognize that there is weakness in my flesh and I'm not capable, do you think that Christ has strength and power available to give us in those moments to actually be able to wake up that we didn't have before? Do you think Jesus is capable of doing that? Yeah. If we want it, I know that Jesus will provide what's necessary to do it. Now, there is absolutely an enemy of souls who hates your guts, by the way, and does not want you to commune with Christ because he knows that power is found in communion with Christ. So whenever I first started to get serious about reading the Spirit of Prophecy, every time I would crack open a book from Ellen White, this severe lethargy came out of nowhere, and it was difficult for me to stay awake. I've had situations like that, and it took just continuing to persevere and asking God for strength, and he gave me what I needed to be able to read. And now I don't have that problem anymore, but I did then. I've had moments, and even in recent months, where, where the enemy would just assault me and would make it so difficult for me to get out of bed 
to take the time to pray for the people who are on my list. I would pray later in the day, and it would affect everything else on my schedule. This battle's real. You're not a loser if you can't get out of bed in the morning. But we can actually ask God for the ability to do so. That's my point. Christ longs to give you that strength, but we got to ask. He can't go where he's not invited. He can't do something that he doesn't have permission to do. And in Malachi chapter 3, that verse that's used way too often in offering appeals, we're told, and it's, it's true to offering, but there's other texts we can use than just Malachi 3 is my point. In that particular text, God says, try me now in this, if I will not pour out a blessing upon you that you cannot contain. We have this saying in America that time is money. And the word is is equivalent to the equal sign. Time equals money. What do you think would happen if God promises to pour out a blessing on us, if we give money to him, if we give some of our resources, if we test him in this, do you think the same thing could apply if we were willing to give God time? Do you think that God could pour out a, a miracle and a blessing from heaven of peace in the midst of hardship, of wisdom in the midst of difficulty and knowing what to do, of having courage to, to continue in the battles that we're facing? Do you think that God could afford you those types of blessings from heaven too? I think he would. I think God would delight to give you these things. So what if we tithed a portion of our day? I'm not saying to spend two hours and 40 minutes a day. Hey, that would be amazing if you could do it. But what if you decided to set aside a chunk of time that's just for God, that you tell the world, you can't have this. This belongs to God. Do you think he would bless you in the same way? I think he would. I've seen him do it in my experience. A friend of mine puts it this way, that Jesus is going to take everyone to heaven who wants to be there. No one is being brought kicking and screaming who has no desire. If we have no desire for communion with God now, we're not going to want communion with God then. We take the same character from here that we bring there. And it's the same person in that sense. Obviously, we have a glorified body, and God has worked through us to make us like him. But my point is, the desires we have here, we're going to have there regarding communion with God. It'll be the same. And God knows that it would be hell for someone to spend eternity with God whom they don't want to be with that they don't value or appreciate or don't want to be with. And despite God's best efforts and God's desires, he'll just give us what we want. He loves you so much that he's willing to give you what you want instead of what he wants. That's how much God loves you. Now, with, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you to myself. God wants you. God is loving you in spite of what we do or don't do or want or don't want. He's still laboring for us. He's still pursuing us. We covered that last night. That has not stopped. But in the end, the decisions that matter the most to us are going to be the things that we're left to have. And so am I saying, I'm going to have a big, big, um, well, I'll explain it here in just a moment. But the pleasure of eternal life begins now. And this is where I, I kind of started to learn this. There was a time in my Christian experience when I first started that I was actually afraid of heaven. I'm kind of ashamed to admit that in front of you. But I was actually afraid of heaven because to me, that just seemed like such a long time. And I thought, what am I going to do for that long? Now, I didn't think I was going to be some fat, naked baby playing a harp on a cloud. But I still, I was terrified of being bored in heaven that I wasn't going to enjoy it. It was just going to be too miserably long for me. And then something changed. I came face to face with the undying love of Jesus, and I fell head over heels in love with a man named Jesus. And everything changed. And now when I hear people having discussions in Sabbath school about what the streets are going to look like and what the walls are going to look like and what we're going to eat and what colors we'll see, I don't even care. I literally do not care what heaven looks like. There's only one thing that makes me excited about heaven, and it's Jesus. That's what makes heaven heaven to me. I'm sure it'll be beautiful. I'm someone who loves hiking and beautiful sights. But if I'm just stuck looking at nice scenery for this whole time, and I don't find what my heart has really been looking for, I'll eventually get bored. But what makes heaven heaven to me now is that I can bow down and wrap my arms around the legs of Jesus, and I never have to let go. I never have to leave him. Never again do I have to be separated from the love of my life. He's always there. I'm never separated. That's what makes heaven heaven to me now. And you can begin to experience the joys of eternal life now. Heaven actually begins here. It begins in your heart. Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We don't have to wait to know God or Jesus until we get to heaven. That starts here. 
eternal life actually begins here, and that's what gives us the desire to want to commune with God. Do you understand the difference? I'm not saying if you don't open some book and read it that you're never going to go to heaven. I'm saying that the desires of our heart are the real issue at hand. And that's why we behave the way we do. That's why we don't desire communion or whatever. And you can actually begin to experience the joys of eternal life now. I'm experiencing it. It's actually possible. But I want to give a really big disclaimer because there are people who are well-intended but start setting up their children for failure. I actually have a friend who it's very difficult for them to be willing of their own desire to just read the Bible because they feel that they're doing it because they have to. And then they feel like, well, I'm not offering God due service. I'm just doing this because I have to, and God's not going to be happy if I do that either. I guess I just don't want to do anything because they were raised and told that you better read your Bible, you better read your Bible, you better read your Bible. There's a big difference here, a huge difference. You are not checking off a box to appease an angry God when you open the Bible in the morning. You're beginning a dialogue and growing a relationship with a loving God. That's the point of devotions. Through communion, through listening, through talking, through getting to know his character and his heart, you can find a love for Jesus awakening in your heart, and you begin to desire more and more frequently to spend time with him. That's how the process changes. And that's what will carry with us into heaven, that same desire to sit at his feet and to commune with him. But I want to make sure I make a really big disclaimer because people are making miserable Christians in the way that they raise their children in this at times. I'm serious. I've had to counsel people with this. It's crippling to them because they know that they should, but then they, they just get those, those flashbacks to the way that they were treated as a kid. And they just literally opening the Bible is like returning to a wounded place where they've been abused. The Bible, because of how they were trained. God isn't asking for that. God's asking for time. God's asking for face time, for fellowship, for him to tell you how much he loves you and wants to invest in you. That's what he's looking for in a devotional life. And it's logical, really, as far as why we should have time with God. You live on a battlefield. There's a real devil. There's a real enemy of souls. He hates your guts. And the way for us to provide protection and, and, and wisdom and strength and courage is in that time with God. That's where it comes from. And in Ephesians chapter 6, there's only one offensive tool listed in the entire armor of God. And what is that? The sword of the Spirit. This is our means of fighting back. We don't have to be a doormat for Satan anymore. We don't have to just get assaulted by bad thoughts, by discouragement, by depression and other things and just take it on the chin because, well, we probably deserve it because God probably is upset with us. You can use the promises of Scripture and how God loves you, how he sees you and wants to do in your life as your sword to fight him back to kick those thoughts out of your mind. It's a great way to train yourself to fight back. Communion with Christ, and I hope you're paying attention to this. If you've missed a whole lot of it and you've just been zoning out or whatever, and I'm not saying that they are, so teachers don't get freaked out by that. I'm just saying in general that communion with Christ is a privilege, not penance and not a punishment. It's not the way that you appease God with your deeds, and it's not a punishment. It's a privilege. The God of heaven loves you so much that he's willing to come and meet with you in your prayer closet. He's willing to come and meet with you when you kneel and pray, when you read the word of God. He's actually willing to make time for you. Every person in this room, he's not too busy for any of you. And any time that you commit to him, I assure you, he will give you twofold. Guarantee you. And I also guarantee you the devil will try to take that from you every step of the way. Don't assume that, well, all right, yeah, that makes me excited. I'm, it's going to be easy to read the Bible from now on. There's a real battle, but when you pray, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you can cast out the devil and he will flee from you. And you can enjoy that communion with God day after day after day after day. It's possible. It's our means of protection. It's our source of joy, strength, peace, guidance, and sanity. And L. White says, you know, that those who neglect to pray or the enemy enshrouds with darkness those who neglect to pray. When we don't put the armor on and we have a bad day, we know why. It's not that God is angry with us. It's that we didn't have the armor we needed to protect ourselves from the battles of the enemy. Does that make sense? It's our means of protection. Now, how can I strengthen my devotional life? How much time do I have? All right. I'll do my best to be prompt and to the point. How do we grow our devotional life then? Be like John and follow Jesus. First and foremost, your primary objective in your devotional life is to connect with Jesus and not become a scholar. You're not looking to become the most brilliant person on the ins and outs of the Hebrew and the Greek and the nuances of verb tenses. Your objective in your communion with God, first and foremost, is to connect with Him, to connect with Jesus, to connect with God the Father, 
to ensure that you have a right standing with him and that you know who he truly is. That's the immediate priority. And the Bible first. I'm not saying that you can't read a devotional book or you can't read the Spirit of Prophecy in your devotional life. But I am saying don't read those things instead of the Bible. And read the Bible first because only the Word of God can impart life. If the Word of God can speak a world into existence, if it can speak the sun and the stars into existence, do you think it can bring life into your spiritual experience? Of course. The Spirit of Prophecy never promises to impart life into your experience. Philip Yancey never promises to bring life into your experience, to speak life into your experience. They're helpful, they're encouraging, and they're meant to point us back to Jesus, particularly the spirit of prophecy. But it can't impart life. And Ellen White would tell you the exact same thing. Do not read my writings instead of the Bible. Don't read Desire of Ages instead of the Bible. Read the Bible and then read Desire of Ages to get more light about what you read. That's fine. But do not do those things at the expense of time in the Bible. Does that make sense? Right? The sword of the Spirit is not Philip Yancey, it's not C.S. Lewis, and it's not Ellen White. It's only the Word of God. So your main means of fighting back is that, and then read those things. I read the Spirit of Prophecy every day, and I love it. But I read it after I read the Bible. You understand the difference? Read out loud. Now, I do not mean holler so that all your roommates hear it in the dorm. But just under your breath enough so that you're actually enunciating words. And what ends up happening is... I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but you ever have it that you sit down to read the Bible and your mind just can't stay focused? And you're reading, and you read like three chapters, and you have no idea what you read ten minutes later? Read out loud. You're engaging more than one of your senses, and it allows you to retain and remember more than if you just read in your mind. Does that make sense? And again, you're just enunciating under your breath. You're not yelling out loud. You're not even fully whispering. But you are going through the process of speaking the Word of God to yourself, which is powerful, and internalizing it in your mind. Does that make sense? Start in the Gospels and observe Jesus, and in turn, the Father. Jesus tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Many of us wrestle with unhealthy pictures of God the Father. Jesus we can kind of roll with because we've seen what he did for us, but the Father's just a mystery to us. He's that big, angry guy that, that looks at me like a disappointed parent. He's so disappointed in me, and he's just holding his finger over the red button, looking for reasons to push it. And by looking at Jesus, you'll come to realize that one of the most amazing truths of the Bible is that God is just like Jesus. He's just like Jesus. He talks to broken people in the same way that Jesus did. He's willing to spend time with people that society rejects just like Jesus did. And so start in the Gospels. Just stare at Jesus, observe and commune and take in Jesus. And in doing this, it's going to set your compass to true north. Because one, you're going to be able to recognize Jesus in other places in the Bible once you do this for a while. Wait a minute. The psalmist David is talking about my friend Jesus in Psalm 22. Wait a minute. Isaiah is talking about Jesus in Isaiah 53. Wait a minute. Paul is talking about Jesus in Romans. You understand? Set your compass to true north. Just, to true north. Just start there for a while and stay there for a while. And it will be a very helpful thing for you to reprogram your picture of God the Father to set your compass to true north. Uh, yeah, we did that, John 14, 9. And then journal how God speaks to you. Because it's very difficult for us to remember the goodness of God in our experience because there's an enemy of souls who tries to take those seeds out, right? Whenever Jesus sows the seed by the wayside and, and in different places and the birds come and try to snatch the seed away. Write down what God does for you. Write in the margin of your Bible, write in the back of your Bible on your flyleaf. But start journaling the ways that God speaks to you so that when you go through moments of darkness and you feel that God is nowhere to be found, you can go back to that journal and realize, wait, God is faithful. When I was really discouraged and God spoke to me on January 3rd, 19-whatever, that's a long time ago, but anyway, 2014, God spoke to me. I was in my bedroom, I was wrestling with discouragement, and I'd said the wrong thing, and then, and then God came. And when I read in the Gospel of Jesus, Jesus said this, and it changed my life. Journal these responses so you don't forget the goodness of God in your life. Additional options, spend some time singing, right? It, it, it makes you merry. It makes you happy on the inside. Jesus was constantly singing. I didn't even know this until I read Desire of Ages. It's amazing. that She mentions two things. That One, that Jesus would be singing as he worked, and he would work with excellence, never cutting corners. Well, he may have cut corners because he was a carpenter, but not like that. Um, but anyway, Jesus, he was never trying to be lazy. He always worked with an excellent spirit. But then she says there would also be times whenever Jesus would just let out a shout to God and everyone in the neighborhood could hear it. It's amazing that Jesus would praise God verbally. He would sing to God verbally. 
God, it says in Zephaniah that God rejoices over you with singing. He's a musical being. Sing to him. Rejoice with him and worship him in your, in your worship time. After scripture, feel free to read the Spirit of Prophecy or other devotional books. If they're, you know, telling the truth as it is in Jesus, not like kooky New Age stuff. But yeah. Spend earnest time in prayer. What that looks like for you, I don't know. People, you know, will come and ask me, so how long do I need to spend with Jesus? I can't give you that answer. How much time are you willing to give Jesus? That's the real question. And whatever you give him, his word will not return to him void. And the thing is, the more that you commune with Jesus, the more you want to commune with Jesus, and the time gets longer. That's what happened to me. I'm a minister of the gospel. I have a lot of work that I do, so my amount of time is probably going to be more than yours. So how much I spend doesn't matter. But how much time are you willing to give God, first and foremost? And just imagine, if you're willing to give God an extra 20 minutes in your morning, let's just say 20 minutes, as, as, as a random figure, do you think that Jesus is able to give you a more restful night's sleep with 20 minutes less because you gave that time to him than if you rested the whole time? Do you think that's possible within the realm of possibility for Jesus? Of course. Try me now in this, he says. Just see what he does. Journal, again, write the things that God speaks to you about, the things that are on your heart. You can do prayer journals. It's a great way to, to remind yourself of how God's working in your life. You can memorize scripture, spirit of prophecy quotes. It's another thing you can do in your devotion time, like, 20 minutes, that's a long time. Like, how much do I read? How? There's multiple things you can do in that time, right? But you're communing with Jesus. Now, two last things, then we'll close. Finding power in personal prayer. First and foremost, slow down, people. Slow down. I remember that I started praying. That same person I talked about this morning, I was praying with the mother of a friend of mine. And I just knew that when this woman starts praying, she knows that she's coming into the presence of God and she slows down. And there's a deepening sincerity in the tone of her voice. And you can just hear her give God every ounce of her heart when she prays. And it was so humbling for me because I realized, whoa, prayer is a lot more serious than I thought it was. Hearing this person pray made me realize, wait a minute, I got to slow down. We used to play this game called Steal the Bacon when I was in school, where you'd be, you have kids on two walls and they'd have like a, a, a chalkboard eraser in the middle. And they would say, go, and both people would run, and whoever grabbed the eraser and got back to the other wall, they won. Many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, treat prayer the same way. We run in and say, hey, Jesus, thanks a lot, be with me, bye-bye, and we go, and we're done. His name is, and, and we, we hurry through our prayers, we're not even thinking about what we say, and we say, in Jesus' name, amen. His name is Jesus. He's the love of your life, and he wants communion with you. Stay there and abide and rest a while. You, when you pray, you're being brought into the presence of God, into the very presence of Jesus. Slow down and enjoy the ride for a while. That's my first recommendation in personal prayer. And when you pray, don't be the Hot Wheels guy from the commercials in the 90s and burning through the name of Jesus. Stop and declare the name that is above every name. Give him some time. Give him credit. Don't be afraid or ashamed or too busy for Jesus. Walk through him as long as it takes. Praise him. Pavel Goya says that it's not safe to pray until you've praised him enough to trust. We run and start telling God what to do, but a lot of times we don't even believe that God will do it for us because we're not reflecting upon the faithfulness of God in our experience in our past. But if you start with praise and praise him for the ways that God is providing for you, you're reminded of the fact that I'm talking to a faithful God who cares about me individually, and I know he will hear me. This is what awakens the prayer of faith. Pray for your cleansing and for your reconciliation with God. Confess your sins. You can be made right in a moment through the power of justification if you will give those sins to Jesus and repent and ask him to cleanse you with the blood. Be specific in what you're praying about and think about what you're praying for. I've literally had moments where I would sit down getting ready to read my Bible, and what came out of my mouth was me praying for Jesus to bless my food. Now, I'm not asking for you to raise your hand if you've done this, but I just wasn't thinking. It was a muscle memory prayer, and it just came out of my mouth. Do you think Jesus wants just muscle memory statements and that those are going to be meritorious? Think about what you say. Say it differently so you're not just you know, regurgitating the same stuff all the time. And be specific, because how are you going to know if God answers your prayer if you say, God, be with so-and-so? God is omnipresent. He's already with them. What do you want him to do for them? Does that make sense? Give them specific prayer requests, and then you're going to know whether he answered your prayers or not. If you ask God to be with them, he's already with them. 
I guess the prayer was answered, but if you're praying specifically, you'll get more specific answers and you know what you're hearing. Pray out loud in the same way that I talked about reading, out loud, just under your breath. But again, it keeps your mind from wandering. One of the things that I do is I walk and pray, you know, for like an hour in the morning, just so I can, I can focus better, I get fresh air. For me to focus on my needs for that long is just difficult for me. And so what I do is I walk. So you can do that, whatever you want. Claim his promises. Remind God of the promises that he made to you. Open your Bible and say, God, you promised me that in Isaiah 40, 31, that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, that they'll mount up with wings as eagles, that they'll run and not be weary, that they shall walk and not faint. You promised me that you would do that, and I'm asking you to keep that promise. You can remind him of that. If we're wrestling also, if we're wrestling with feelings of separation from God and darkness, ask yourself the earnest question. Is there something that God has convicted me of that I've not dealt with, that I haven't surrendered? And if that's the case, make it right. Go to God. Confess that sin. Be reconciled to God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Be reconciled. Are there sins that we've not repented of? Are there things that we place a higher estimation on and importance than on God and communion with Him? If there are, give them to Him. If it's causing you difficulty, you realize that you're wrestling with the silence of God or with difficulty, give those things to Him. Clear the account and come back to God. Pray scripture back to God. I just mentioned that. And take time to listen. Can you imagine what type of relationship it would be if all that happened was your wife talked to you or you talked to your husband and you never gave them a chance to respond? We're praying to God and asking God to speak to us, but we're burning through the scripture. We tell God what to do and then we run from his presence before he can even open his mouth to say something in response. Slow down and give God a chance to speak back. And the way that you can know whether it's God speaking or you speaking is by spending time in the Word to know. Is this consistent with the Word of God or is this something else? Does that make sense? This is where having a devotional life helps in knowing to distinguish the voice of God too. We're praying to receive Christ and the blessings come with Him. Paul Vagoya mentions this as well. He says that God does not mail the blessings to us. They come with Him. You got financial needs. You got emotional needs. You got heartbreak. Ask for Jesus, and with Jesus comes comfort, comes peace, comes wisdom, comes the ability to provide for your needs. Seek Him, and when you seek Him, you'll forget about your other needs. It's amazing when you can have that level of communion with God. We still have real needs, we still have real situations, but God is able to provide and longs to, so ask for Him. He's the source of the provision for all the needs that you have. That's the safest thing to be praying. You can pray for other stuff too, don't get me wrong. There's an example of this in Psalm 73, really briefly. And then I need to, to close out here with another form of prayer. Psalm 73, 25 to 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You've destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Try walking again is another option that you have. And foster a mindset of continual prayer throughout the day. Remind yourself that God exists and that you can talk to him throughout the course of the day. Finding power in intercessory prayer. Same thing, slow down. Be specific again about what you're praying for. Because again, if you're praying for so-and-so and all you're saying is be with so-and-so, you never know whether those prayers are being answered. It's hard to strengthen your faith. And it's, it's like praying with buckshot. Give God specific instructions on what you're asking of him and for them, and you'll probably see a lot more answers. And it's probably better for him too. Again, pray out loud. Pray the blood of Jesus over them and ask for the forgiveness of their sins. Roger Morneau talks about that in his book. Give God permission to do his will in their lives. They may not be asking for this for themselves. But you can ask it on their behalf, and you can see God do stuff that he couldn't do otherwise. Pray that God would have the throne of their hearts. Claim scripture promises over their situation. Let's say, parents, you're dealing with a lost child. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 16 and 17 is a good example of this, or a lost family member. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 16 and 17. I'll read this real quick. And search, mind the text of Scripture for promises for the people you love about and remind, that you love and remind God of those promises. So it says, refrain, this is verse 16 and 17 of Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. 
For your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own borders. You can claim the promises of God for lost souls and remind him that he promised that. Don't be afraid to pray bigger things for people. We talked about that this morning. Their salvation is always the will of God and make that a priority over anything else. You ever wondering what's the will of God and what should I be praying for? You can always pray for their salvation. You never have to worry about that. That's always safe. It's always the will of God. And it's always something that will give God more permission to work than he did if you didn't pray. And be willing to yield to God's will. I just lost, as I mentioned this morning during prayer time, I lost Jim Morris. I love Jim Morris with all of my heart. He was a phenomenal man. He loved Jesus and became a man of the book and would not believe anything if the Bible did not teach it. And I valued him. He made me a better minister of the gospel in giving him Bible studies. But Jim has had perpetual health issues, and just recently his body was ravaged by cancer. I would love to see Jim. I would love to have more time with Jim, but I don't know what is in Jim's best interest. I really don't. And so I had to choose to yield to God, to yield to God's will and to give God permission to do whatever it took to ensure that Jim was his and that his suffering was as minimal as possible. But I don't know what God wants for Jim. Does that make sense? So we have to yield to God's will regardless, knowing because God will give them what they need. God will give them what they most need. Ask God what he wants you to pray for these people. Just imagine. God has been longing for this all along. Say, God, what do you want me to pray for so-and-so? I had that happen right behind Wendy's place. I was walking around the back road of the girl's dorm, and I asked God specifically, what do you want me to pray for so-and-so? And he gave me an immediate answer. And I've been praying for that for them ever since. You can actually ask God that stuff. If you don't know what to pray about, ask him. Paul says we don't know how to pray as we ought in Romans 8. But that the Holy Spirit will, will, will utter groans, intense groans, on our behalf. You can actually ask God to tell you what to pray for. And again, take time to listen whenever you pray that. Some helpful resources. Incredible Answers to Prayer by Roger Morneau. You can get it at the ABC. Great book. And I think he has a couple videos too, but it's a phenomenal resource. I'm so indebted to Rich Sutton for sharing that with me. Daring to Ask for More by Melody Mason. Super good book dealing with the practical nuts and bolts of prayer and heart issue stuff. Not just say these words in this order. She's getting to the real heart of the matter. Are you believing lies about who God is? What strongholds exist in your experience? Powerful stuff. Good friend of mine, Daring to Ask for More by Melody Mason. Paul Vagoya has a book called One Miracle After Another. Oh, dear. That TV's being obdurate. Ooh, and I almost died. All right, uh, the next link down, nadministries.org. Uh, if you go there, if you actually if you just type Paul Vagoya, P-A-V-E-L-G-O-I-A, and type Vital Prayers, There's a series of messages he did at his church in Lexington, Kentucky that are powerful, dealing with some great, great principles of prayer and a lot of testimonies too. And (laughs) that TV hates me. Pavel Goya had an ASI seminar he did in 2016. Uh, You can find him on Audioverse. If you type Pavel Goya in Audioverse, he's actually the first person listed, or those are the most recent sermons listed. There were two of them. Awesome stuff. Really, really good stuff. Uh, Elder Mark Finley has a, a seminar on Audioverse called Busyness. Um, spirituality and vision. I'll just look at my computer screen. I won't make any more comments. Sorry, guys. Uh, it's called, on Audioverse, Busyness, Spirituality, and Vision. There's some great Bible study principles. He talks about the sin of busyness. It's in most of our lives. Really, really good stuff. And how to, how to engage your devotional life and stuff. And anyway, those are some basic principles. I'll just close with that. But has this been helpful this morning? One, to know that God desires to commune with you. But two, basic ways to do so. Has this been helpful? Just some practical steps that you can kind of bring into your devotional life to revive it, uh, to awaken it. So what I'm going to do is close with a word of prayer. And then again, tonight we're going to deal with how can I be ready to stand at the end of time? Like, how do I get myself ready? You hear that all the time. Get ready, get ready, get ready. How do I do that? How is God going to prepare me? So let's close with a word of prayer. God, I thank you that you desire to have time with me, that you actually desire to have time with everyone in this room and whoever's watching or listening. You love us. You delight to commune with us, and you wish that we would delight to commune with you. I pray that we would come to value the fact that eternal life is available to us today, and we don't have to wait until later. We can commune with you now. We can have an experience with you now And I just pray that through contact with your love, we would desire that on an even greater level. 
that you would revive us and that you would use us to be a blessing to others, that we could share the blessings you give us in our communion with you in the mornings with our family, with our friends, with the people that you put in our path and in our sphere of influence. Revive us, O God, I pray. Give us a desire for communion with you and to do the things that please you and a hatred for the things that pull us away from you. This is our plea, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.